0: 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you more raises as Chip launches a Series A, PayPal is coming for Klarna and Afterpay, and Goldman Sachs launches its very own font. What else? Goldman sands. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 459 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mrs. Mel Stringer, won't it? I called you Mrs. then, Mel. Like, is that is that right?
1: No, but I'm cool with that. That makes me sound I'm, very. I mean, I'm, I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna do that.
0: Well, I'm gonna do that again. No, that sounded it's good. weird. It sounds it's... like
1: I've got my shit together. Somebody's willing to marry me.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure that's the only objective you should have in this day and age. But anyway, how have you been doing this this week, Mel? How's things been?
1: Very well, thank you, David. It's an absolute honour to be on the show with you guys and to have some really exciting guests today.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun one. There's uh, foreshadowing, foreshadowing, but a few interesting things to talk about for sure. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, As is now normal, we're going to be joined, of course, remotely by some super duper awesome guests making a welcome return. We have Alex Latham, the CMO at Chip. How's it going, Alex?
2: Very good. Thank you. I'm here in the semi-empty Chip HQ in Chancery Lane. There's bit like a ghost town, but things are going very well. It's been a lot of late nights this week. I think I was here till about 3am this morning, so slightly running empty, but very excited to be on the show. So lots to talk about.
0: Startup life—it's hard, right? I, I mean, I hope they don't keep you there to three am every night, but uh, but it's yeah, it's a uh, it's a busy, busy time, isn't it? But uh, we'll definitely get into the oddities of walking around London where nobody else is there. I'm sure, as as well as we go through the show. But uh, and making his fintech insider debut, we have Daniel Lanyon, who is the editor in chief at AltFi. How's it going, Daniel?
3: Very well, thank you, David. Um, you know, been working hard, not as hard as Alex, but um, yeah, looking forward to the. The sort of back to school, back to fintech school uh, feeling that uh, is sort of bubbling away. We've got lots of exciting projects that we're working on at the moment that we are going to launch soon, which is which is great. Um, a bid for TikTok isn't one of them. And, uh, <laughs>
0: Look, everybody else has had a bash at it. We, I think, we should club together and just give it a go. You know, particularly the US entity, but uh, we'll see. Let's do it. Let's do it. Anyway, all right, guys, let's get started with this week's news then. So first up, we have a story over on Business Insider. So UK Savings Fintech, Chip, never heard of them, not sure anybody on the show has, so let's let's be honest, but well, we'll come to that in a second, uh, is raising a Series A round that will value it at more than $130 million. So Chip saves money for customers automatically based on their spending habits, has raised around $12 million investment, including a successful crowdfunding uh, round earlier in 2020 that netted it just over $2.6 million in new funding. So for those who are unfamiliar with Chip, uh, its software uses AI and open banking tech to automate. Automatically save money for customers. After getting FCA authorization earlier on this year, it launched interest bearing accounts in July. Chips currently charges customers £1 a month for its services, but plans to launch new premium offerings, Chip X, in October. It will cost £3.49 a month and provide customers with access to unlimited deposits and a much wider range of investment funds. I mean, look, I can pontificate about this as you know as as the best of them but Alex let us know a little bit more about this because I imagine this is probably why you've been in the office so late this weekend
2: yeah it's been um well it's been an interesting six months really I think last time I was on this show was just at the beginning of lockdown I think it was literally the first show you did at the beginning of lockdown and I remember there was a complete sense of kind of like, well, frankly unease in the air. No one really knew what was going to happen. No one was, knew certainly what was going to happen in fintech. Um, and Chip was very much the same. We didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, and the six months has really kind of blown us away. We've um, we had a, what we thought was a very ambitious task of getting quarter of a million savers by the end of 2020. Um, and we passed that about three weeks ago. So it's been um, pretty incredible to see the growth. Our, our deposits have shot up during lockdown, partly due to people frankly spending less um the way chip works is that it analyzes what spare money you have um, and so naturally people have, have been having quite a lot of bits of spare money over the last kind of six months um but it's been surreal, really. We we kind of when we started Chip, um, which is like three years ago now, and it was Simon and I in Level Thirty Nine. Simon's the CEO. And we had this vision that like one day Chip could be a real lifeline for someone who needs it. And uh, if if times times are hard, then Chip could be that that financial security blanket in the background. Um, and we remember when Brexit was kind of going full on, we were like, "Wow, this is it. This is going to be the financial security blanket." Little did we know what was around the corner. And then with COVID, like. It truly is a financial security blanket so it's quite overwhelming frankly to see to see that really materialize but it's been a very busy week there's stuff I can talk about stuff I can't talk about Um, we are as you alluded to in the process of raising our series A I can't talk about too much of that because some very exciting conversations are happening Um, but what I can talk about is as you mentioned in the past we have been heavily crowdfunded one of our kind of our proudest uh, kind of flags there is that our savers are investors in the business. So we are launching in true chip style a uh, crowd element to this raise and we actually launched it about three hours ago and uh we've already had ten thousand people, over ten thousand people pre register for that raise. So it's begun it's gonna be a busy couple of weeks, but it's exciting times and um onwards and upwards anyway.
0: I mean, that's fantastic. Congratulations with the success. It's, um, I mean, when your community are your investors and your users and then your investors, it's like a, it's a good cycle to get to there, isn't it? Uh, happy customers becoming part of the, part of the business. It's a, it's a great thing there, but, uh, your big tease as well, telling us there's exciting things coming along and you're not telling us about it. Like, uh, how dare you? I don't know. Uh, you'll have to come back when you can talk about it a little bit more then. But, um, I mean, it's an interesting point, guys, isn't it? I mean, in this COVID period, are you able to save a little bit more money than you would have done before? Because, I mean, I'm not queuing up for Pratt or. Spending, you know, two thousand pounds just to get into London anymore. So, you know, the amount of money that people must be able to save in this period, even with all of the the weird and wonderful things that are happening, must be going up a little bit. I mean, Mel, are you uh, are you managing to save a little bit of money on not spending uh, spending money on a fancy sandwiches every day in London?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. So not uh, not commuting, um, not having so many lunches out um, and I realised that actually uh, living in London and working in London it's so easy just to see your friends after work and go out with colleagues. You end up going out for dinner three or four times a week and it just gets really out of control. Um, I have had to resist the urge to uh, buy things for my house and you know that sort of thing but definitely I'm finding I'm saving more and when I've spoken to friends and colleagues uh, here at 11FS we all seem to be Bizarrely, a little bit financially um, better off in terms of savings, and I think people are taking, you know, having that buffer a bit more seriously as well. Um, and actually, I was looking at the you know trust pilot reviews recently, and you guys are actually performing a really amazing service for people there's people saying that they've never managed to save before and suddenly they're able to um so yeah lots of high praise for you um including you know best interest rates really um for accessible funds in the market as well so um yeah
2: thank you very much um, i think it's it's kind of weird because for us Chip is a lot of things to a lot of different people. As you mentioned, we, we now offer um, market leading interest rates. Um, and and for us, our kind of our, our vision and our mission is so much bigger than kind of chip automatically stashing a bit of money away to the side without you really noticing or feeling it. It is. We want to, frankly, take on the banks and we want to build the best savings account in the world. Uh, And that has two parts. That has the automation side of things. But a massive part of that is how can we give people the best returns? And I really think, I sound a bit arrogant now, but I really think a part of our success in the last few months has been because the markets, uh, the interest rate market has really kind of collapsed. And obviously, banks are offering really low interest rates that our ability to kind of offer the best interest rate and negotiate on the customer's behalf is actually really a sell that people like. People don't want to have to move their money around to get an extra kind of five basis points on their, on their savings, whereas chip can, can do that for them. So, yeah, so it's very exciting, but um, yeah, I think our, our mission is, is, is very big and I think we're, we're definitely on a, our on a way, but um, we're just getting started, really.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, out of different crises comes different opportunities, don't they? Uh, you know, definitely if you, you talk to somebody like Charles Andrews uh, you know, over and at, over at Zopa, um, you know, 2008, you know, just before that and everything that happened there would be the catalyst for their success for, for this period. So, I mean, it's it's amazing the opportunities that come out of these types of periods, isn't it, Daniel?
3: No, absolutely. I, I think... Um it's been it's been fascinating to see um, this group of fintech firms that you know I was call the sort of the digital wealth um, space or, or you know savings and investment is how we categorise it via on our on our um, web page but these group of fintechs that you know encompass savings apps, uh, robo advisors, you know other ways of, of storing money I suppose and um, or putting it away for a rainy day have to some extent, you know, lagged behind digital banks and maybe uh, before that sort of alternative lenders in terms of, you know, the column inches, but now seems to be a real sweet spot for the sort of broad digital wealth space. And I think, you know, that's obviously um, two reasons which which we've sort of partly covered, you know, one being people have some time to sort of reassess their financial um, situation. And and certainly, you know, lots of friends um, of mine have, have mentioned that and, you know, whether it's tracking down old pensions, or, you know, opening their first ISA, or, or maybe making their first um, sort of investment in the stock market. And I think that actually comes on to another, I think, huge, important um, reason is that, you know, the, the market crash, which obviously was, um, feels like a, a while ago now, but you know, it was only six months ago, it really presented one of the first opportunities for a lot of people to buy risk assets, equities at um, sort of reasonable valuations, really, and and reasonable prices. And when you couple that with easier ways to access, such as, you know, free trade, for example, um, or Robinhood in the US, so I think um, those two things really brought forward this sector. So I think it's a really good time for the sector in general.
0: Yeah. I mean, as a, as an organization, I mean, not just you guys at Chip, but like as fintech more broadly, I mean, proving that subscription based business models work really, really well. This is a, a great sort of case study for that. I mean, a, a lot of, uh, I know, Alex um, I've had sort of conversations with Chip right at the beginning of the organizations and it's like actually look we get into conversations around is this a feature is this a product you guys have created a beachhead that was a feature that solved a real problem for people not just financially but just like mentally it's like that little habit that you can form and create and get going that then is grown into this product that you've got now so I mean can you? Talk a little bit about more, more about the the premium offering because actually, you know, getting people up into that uh, £3.49 uh, subscription for this, it's like people paying a subscription for savings is something that you wouldn't even have thought about 10 years ago. But actually now, if that's the best way that they can ensure that they're always going to be better off, then people are willing to pay you money to do the things that they wouldn't want to do themselves, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um... Like more broadly, like taking a zoom out, I've, I've got a bit of a kind of philosophy on fintech. Um, and I think basically when it really comes down to it, fintechs are really going to make our money or their money by either lending our money or by persuading customers to move their money into investments or, or kind of a wealth manager, right? And like, really, that is the crux of it. If you look at every fintech in our space, that that is what everyone is trying to do in one way or another. They're trying to lend money or they're trying to persuade people to put their money into investments. So where does that kind of fit within the space? Where does that fit within chip? So for us, it's relatively natural kind of evolution from the customer lifecycle where we attract a customer using the best interest rates in the market. But frankly, as I was mentioning earlier, interest rates aren't great at the moment. So how can we allow people to kind of to really get better returns, the best returns and and, and have kind of have a nice selection of returns from different investment products that ethical, that are different funds, and, and kind of give them the choice, but at the same time we want to use that kind of that chip automation to really make it magical. Um, and that's what our premium offering or yeah, Chip X, as we call it, is is going to be the kind of the extension of chip to allow people to go from, okay, I save, I love this app, it's great. Um, happy to pay a quid for it to, to let it to kind of manage my wealth for me and, and automatically save money for me. But when I actually actually want to get the better returns and the best returns and I have that kind of that risk appetite, then I can move that money to investments. And that's what we're trying to do. And I think it should be quite a nice um, life cycle for the user from from kind of saver to, to investor. Um, um, and then back to kind of my philosophy of fintech, I think, it, as I said, it's kind of a nice seamless journey, whereas some fintechs, namely no names who might be struggling in the moment, might be finding that kind of that conversion of the customer from the engagement hook, be it a sexy, beautiful card, into, okay, how do we actually monetize these people? How are we going to lend money to them or send them to money into investments, which is where the real revenue opportunities are. Um, so I think the chip, we're in a nice position because it's kind of a nice seamless flow for the customer, but I think other fintechs are going to, um, Kind of struggle potentially
0: yeah and it is a it is an interesting one isn't it as all of those things sort of play out where opportunities for long-term sustainable revenue really sort of comes from it and uh you know different people are making very different plays in that space aren't they but daniel you've got a point on that
3: um so yeah I, i'm just really interested in the in the sort of subscription economy um and fintech at the moment i think it's a really um maybe a bit of a crunch time i i suppose i had the personal realization that i just bought an ipad and I sort of collected together my favorite apps, you know, to, to sort of refresh and, and try out a few new ones as well. And, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll try this uh, moleskin app that, you know, is £18 pounds or something like that for the, for the year. And I'll just, you know, I'll try it for a week and, and, and see how it goes. And, you know, lo and behold, it came along and I, and I couldn't believe it. You know, I really um, surprised myself in that it seemed worth it, you know, to pay, you know, what seems to be quite a lot of money, you know, for a, for a digital experience. And genuinely, it felt worthwhile, and so I sort of thought, well, you know, actually, I wonder how many of these apps I have paid for or, or do pay for regularly. And it suddenly occurred to me, I really am using a lot of these paid-for apps, and and it is worthwhile, and it is, you know, adding value to to life or making things easier. And so I think that, yeah, coupled with um, that realization and and just a few sort of hard facts in terms of, you know, we obviously saw Monzo sort of launch there. Their plus um, range recently, they got about 50,000 paying users in the first month. Um, Revolut also revealed in their latest numbers for 2019 that they were making about £40 million a year from uh, subscriptions. You know, this is starting to look interesting. So I think the race is on really to the first million subscribers, say, um, and that starts to get pretty, pretty serious. Yeah, I mean, it's an
0: interesting point, isn't it? Because I mean,
3: the the challenge
0: there, I mean, we, we've sort of said this for a little while now is like, it's very ironic that the industry is called financial services when people are just bothered about selling products, right? Um, the whole industry will move towards a service because actually, if you kind of think about everything that we love in life, it's like, it's the services that continually evidence how they add value. You know, you absolutely hit the, the nail on the head there, Daniel, in terms of the word value, because it's like, if the Moleskin app is like, £200, but it generates value to you as an individual, then actually it's worth it, right? So if actually Chip or Revolut or Monzo or whoever can create a service that is a good value trade-off between the user and the, the organization... Then it's value for money and that business model will work. It actually makes these organizations work harder as well. Because when you kind of think of more traditional financial services models who are just bothered about selling a product and not about servicing it, if you're gonna charge people every month, Alex, for, for chip service, you're gonna to have to provide a proper service that people really value, right?
2: Absolutely. And I think I think that's I, I remember when Transfer-wise changed their fee structure slightly. They released this amazing blog post, which I'm I'm like horrified to say I did steal slightly, which was basically showing a pie chart of breaking down exactly where their fees go, and a lot of that was breaking down. So this is the customer service chunk of the pie. This is the app, the feature development uh, kind of side of the pie. This is our like engineering and maintenance side of the pie. And again, being super transparent with their customers was fantastic, but really showing that. As you said, this is a service. This is something we're going to develop. These are new features in the roadmap, linking it to future features, and showing the customers that you're, frankly, on a journey with us. And by paying that one pound a month, we're going to take you on that journey, and we're going to build all these amazing things. and uh, And they're almost going to feel part of that process with you. So that that's kind of our ph- philosophy that we kind of stole from Store-wise.
0: Yeah, I mean, steal with pride, right? Don't uh, don't be don't be scared about sort of borrowing other people's good ideas. But uh, I mean, Mel, like. Financial services being about services, it seems like a pretty straightforward idea, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, on the service thing, I was pondering as you guys were uh, chatting about the existing product that you have. So the easy access interest rates, high interest rate product, um, and then this sort of migration over towards uh, offering investment Products as well. Do you have any insight on uh, how long your customers keep their deposits with you and what the sort of churn rate is, uh, when people might need to withdraw funds, the reasons behind that? Because in other conversations that I've been having, there seems to be this sort of tension between wanting to maximize industry returns by sort of utilising investment products and so on. And then um, also having this buffer and being able to draw on that liquidity when it's needed. So it'd be great to hear what you have to say about that.
2: Yeah, definitely. So the way we, so generally as a kind of a product, our our retention rates are are really quite nice. And i argue probably some of the best in fintech. So obviously chip fundamentally is an active experience, a passive experience. You don't need to play around with it every day. You can just let it do its thing. And that's Good enough for us, and you're frankly an engaged active user as as far as we're concerned. So, in terms of kind of our customer retention, we don't really play for the engagement or kind of them coming to the app. We want to be in the background. You've got plenty of apps on your phone. We don't want to compete with them, frankly. So, in terms of our overall retention rate, it's actually really quite good because we just operate in the background. But in terms of, yeah, you're absolutely right. How do you kind of balance that? do customers kind of withdraw their money uh, when they kind of need to pay for a big night out? Or how can we kind of persuade them this money is kind of their longer term savings? And we really do that by compartmentalization within the app. And we really kind of play to that and and the feedback from the users that they like almost like a Spotify playlist they like curating their kind of their chip goals their chip accounts so we have the kind of the instant access chip mm. account the chip wallet and that that's where you kind of auto save into we encourage users to make goals in there we think we have like over 60,000 goals live right now that people are kind of saving for and, and kind of end, uh, like adding money into and they really range from everything to kind of someone's birthday present all the way through to a house deposit so they range drastically but when the important thing is when they hit those goals then they withdraw it from that goal and it kind of that again that compartmentalizes kind of that cash for that thing that they're saving up for um, but then also we have the interest account and the interest account is the kind of is the 0.9 percent going up to one percent in September very exciting uh, product and that is the long-term savings and we, we we don't really want people to have goals for that feature because frankly we want them to kind of put their money in there and leave it that is going to be your money for life let that sit in the background do its thing we're gonna our amazing commercial team is going to go and negotiate the best rates for you so you can just sit back let it do its thing and relax and the withdrawal rates for that account are, are really really low and, and the churn rate very very low as well so that's kind of how we do it we kind of our overall product retention rate is really great because we're automatic and we don't want to kind of get be in people's faces too much um and uh, and then but on top of that it's all about compartmentalizing and that's what we do chip goals chip wallets and kind of different accounts Hopefully that that answers the question.
0: I'll be honest, I, I just love a company who takes branding so seriously as well. It's like, uh, you know, as a, an organization who puts 11 in front of everything, then uh, hearing chip in front of everything, it just uh, fills my heart with glee, it does. But uh, right, we really better move on, though, because there's a hell of a lot of other stuff that's happening this week as well. So I'm going to move on to the next story. It's over on Finextra. It is PayPal introduces interest-free buy now, pay later products. So PayPal has launched Pay in 4 a short-term interest-free buy now, pay later installment offer for merchants in the US. As online purchases increase and consumers look for way more ways to save during a COVID-19, Buy now, Buy now, later has accelerated significantly in popularity. So PayPal says pay in four can help merchants drive conversion, revenue and customer loyalty, all without taking on additional risk and Paying additional fees, so merchants get paid up front while customers pay for purchases between thirty dollars and six hundred dollars in four installments over a six-week period with no fees of interest. Uh, I mean, the whole sort of buy now pay later sort of phase has has really. I mean, Klarna and Afterpay and all these different firms have grown really, really significantly. This is a trend that's massively taken off, isn't it, Daniel?
3: Oh, I think it's enormous, and um, you know, I think it's got a very, very long way to go. I think it does actually feed into the the subscription economy that we obviously we talked about, and I think people, particularly younger people, quite like this idea of having a monthly sort of cost base that they know what it is, and, and obviously it appeals and just on a rational basis in terms of it's it's cheaper um, to not access you know seventeen point eight percent or whatever. Um, to fund a purchase, um, and obviously it allows, you know, people who need that liquidity, um, if they're buying something, you know, big, perhaps, um, to access it. Um, so no, I think it's it's a big move. I noted at the time that there was some, I think there were some big hits to Afterpay's share price. I think you know it was down circa ten um, percent um, just on the news of of PayPal introducing buy now pay later. Um, I also think it's very worth remembering that outside of the fintech bubble buy now pay later is perhaps a bit unfairly seen as controversial by by a lot of people and you know and obvious there, there's there's an obvious um, notion that you know marketing to to young people who who might not um have sort of experience in in the in you know in their financial lives you know that that's that's a valid concern but I would say that broadly, I, I consider it to be, you know, pretty innovative and and an attractive thing, um, you know, for uh, and something that will play out for, for many years. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, fintech really
0: started with payments, right? You know, innovation around the payment sphere and the payment space. But it's it's, you know, 15 years later, this is not done yet. You know, there is different ways of doing this and the options around payments, both pre-purchase post-purchase all of those things it's uh, again it's there's innovations coming after innovations isn't there so uh, and these are not sort of small companies right you know after pay being valued at 18 billion like it's it's just insane the amount of uh, throughput and obviously i mean paypal is like og in the fintech space right so these guys really continuing to evolve and create new products is is really interesting in the market but mel what do you think to this one
1: I think it's really interesting. Um, I think, you know, because we're talking about the US as well, um, there are some complexities um to do with the different fees that might be involved with different states. And there isn't this sort of like parity of ruling. So I don't know if the penalties for not paying will be different state by state. Um, so yeah, that will be sort of interesting to look at. But I, I broadly agree with uh, with Daniel that it's really a positive thing. And I think for smaller merchants, they can reduce some sort of affordability friction for their products as well. I do think, though, that I remember reading last year, something about Afterpay, not necessarily doing credit checks up front. So the barrier to entry to these sorts of products is quite low, but the penalty potentially is quite high. So they do have, um, they do have the ability to sort of report, um, you know, if, if you've been late paying, or if you haven't paid uh, to a credit referencing agency. Just, so just to sort of echo Daniel's point, I think for younger people, it could be a bit of a, a bit of a trap.
0: Yeah. I think particularly, I think Klana has, you know, took a bit of a brunt of that in the media recently in terms of, is it sort of almost creating a bit of a spiral of debt for, for people who haven't been used to dealing with, you know, credit cards in a major way as, as well. So it, it is a, it is a difficult thing. I think these, these tools can always be used for positivity and they can always use, be used for, you know, bad as well, can't they? So, uh, I think, um, there's definitely a responsibility for, for those organizations to make sure that they're educating people as they go, um, and not just getting them into, you know, 3000 pounds worth of debt from their favorite clothing company sort of store. But, uh, Alex, what do you think to this one?
2: Yeah. So it's an interesting one from my perspective. I'm like, be very very open. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of, of, of Klarna or or this. I think, so obviously from my perspective, I would rather, much rather someone downloads an amazing savings app, for example, and then automatically saves for four weeks and then buys something. And I think just from the customer and educational perspective, that's so much better. And, and I think this is fantastic for merchants. Don't get me wrong. Merchants are going to absolutely love this. But from the customer's perspective, the people that use Klarna are generally younger they're, they're they're not so okay with financial products and they just think they can get that thing from azos or Topshop immediately and that is not a good thing That that is something that is going to create a spiral as you said a spiral of debt people are going to go out there they're going to get used to oh i can't afford it now but i'm going to buy it now anyway regardless of kind of what impact that has and so i think yeah on the face of it this product's very interesting merchants are going to love it and i'm sure consumers will love it too but what impact is that going to have on, without getting too meta, on society? Like what, what's it going to do to society when everyone right now thinks I can just buy anything and pay in installments. And then when they come to buy that car and they actually get nailed on the finance and then they suddenly realize they're in a the circle of debt, what are they going to do? So I'm, I'm not too keen.
0: I know if uh, if Mr. Samuel was here right now, he'd say the US economy is a economy based on instant gratification. So you know the instantaneous hit of buying that thing and then working out the payments later. I, I think that ship has well and truly sailed over in the US a little bit. Uh, Alex, I agree with you. I think um, saving for something to be able to buy it outright is a very sensible step for, for most people to take. But in most instances, most people aren't in that situation where they're probably patient enough to do that, are they? But uh, Daniel, you got a thought on that?
3: Well, I I just think that, you know, maybe this is being a bit too naive, but I think that it does offer people, you know, opportunities, for example, to take advantage of discounts or sales, or, um, you know, that maybe they wouldn't, they um, have to buy it all in one go, or obviously save for it. So I think, you know, that's maybe a small reason, but I share a lot of Alex's concerns. And I think that, you know, obviously being sensible with money is a very important lesson that most people learn the hard way. I think. So putting another thing in there to, you know, add to that complexity maybe isn't a good thing, but I've just got a sort of gut feeling that there is a maybe a long-term change in behavior that it also can bring about in a positive way, and maybe not in everyone, and maybe that's sort of the point. But, you know, in terms of being, you know, a, cutting out the cost of credit, um, but B, you know, giving people a sort of a headline figure about how much they, you know, they're paying off or something for, you know, let's say per month. So let's say it's £50. Pounds, um, they know that they've got that coming. Hopefully they can factor it in. And, you know, that hopefully should help them, you know, not only budget, but also build their healthy credit history. So I was going to say, I think, I think that's a
0: major point on this, isn't it? Is that, again, um, US economy, US system, building a healthy credit history for inevitably a, a much larger purchase when it comes to a mortgage or something along those lines. I mean, it, that could be an advantage to this in terms of setting up. But um, but yeah, we might be slightly looking for silver linings on a, a slightly ulterior motive in some of these things. But uh, let's, let's presume positivity in these things anyway. But um, Mel, have you got a, a point on that?
1: Yeah, a slightly contrarian uh, view, I suppose. Um, but I, I think a lot of the you know negativity around instant gratification and uh, putting things on credit is due to the expense of doing so. So you're paying with a credit card, and you're paying interest on that. Um, but I wonder if because there is no interest to pay, um, you can enjoy the thing for longer, and you're sacrificing the same amount of time i can see i can see alex disagrees with me um but yeah i think i think obviously you have to be you know mature with your with your money um but mathematically i don't know if actually it's better off buying it now
0: i mean some some people work in different ways don't they i mean some people want instant gratification some people get gratification from saving the money and breaking open that piggy bank right so uh it's a uh, all different folks work in different ways, don't they? But um, we are pressed for time, so I'm going to move on at this stage. So uh, that's the end of the first part of the show. We'll be back with you very shortly. All right, guys, and on with the second part of the news. First up, we have a story over on Finextra, which is BBVA builds gender-neutral global chatbot. Uh, so BBVA has bucked the trend of assigning female voices to artificial intelligent assistants with the launch of Blue, a gender-neutral chatbot trained to answer customers' everyday banking queries. So BBVA's Blue is an attempt to unite the multiple virtual assistants employed by the bank's Ac- Meltis definitely pronounced that wrong, global network, that never tries to pass itself off as a human, neither does it totally identify itself as a robot. Seems a bit, um, uh, I mean, you're going to have to tell us you're one of these things between the two of them, right? Um, But instead going by the label of non-human, according to BBVA's design manager. The task of uh, creating Blue fell to 12 designers, six product owners and three program managers and 20 developers across BBVA's global network and took almost two years to come to fruition. Blue is currently operational in Spain and Mexico and will be gradually rolled out uh, across the bank's global footprint and online channels. Um, what do we think to this, folks? Because um, it's interesting. Obviously, with you know uh, the names of assistants, I'm not going to say because it will drive people's uh, assistants crazy in their kitchens or homes or whatever it is when they're listening to this. Um, but the Apple one and the Amazon one and all the different things that are there, I mean, they've all generally been female names and female voices, right? Um, do we think that's a problem in the way in which they're being set up?
1: I think it's a bit of a hot potato, isn't it? Um, I do think that it would be really interesting to have been a fly on the wall in their user testing um, because anecdotally and, you know, generally just reading a few stories on this, there seems to be a preference for female voices um, for any kind of assistance. And I don't know if this is sort of part generational, part cultural norm, Um and I do, I really like the idea that, you know, the AI is gender neutral, but I don't even know what that sounds like in a voice. And I think when it's done in sci-fi, um, it's usually actually, um, you know, feminine overtones uh, with, you know, an androgynous body. And I, I don't really know if that, you know, is, yeah, I don't know if that's appealing to anyone really.
0: Well, And that's the thing. I, I mean, is is it just as simple as, allowing a preference do you know what i mean because i mean with uh you know amazon and apple and you know you have the ability to state a preference of what you want the voice to be uh, i mean i long for iron man's house and uh, and his butler you know what i mean like that would be my ideal but um but but actually just being in a situation where you give people the preference for it because i because certain people will respond better to a male's voice, certain people who respond better to a female's voice, and giving people the preference of what those things are would just probably solve this problem, wouldn't it? But like you say, I almost kind of want to go, I don't know what a gender neutral voice sounds like. I really want to listen to what this thing is. Sadly, my Spanish is pretty rubbish, if I'm honest, really. So it's going to mean very little to me anyway. But um, Alex, what do you think to this
2: one? So I think I'm going to take my fintech hat off and put my marketing hat on, and i think brands have a real responsibility as we kind of go into really really where we are now which is most companies are lifestyle marketed um, and i think finance and fintech is definitely behind the times in terms of kind of where we're at compared to kind of sports brands clothing brands etc cetera, etc cetera. but we are all at the end of the day selling a lifestyle bbva launched I'm not sure if you lot saw but they launched a year ago um they're like rebrand and an advertising campaign, which was the most lifestyle advert I've ever seen for a bank. I kid you not. It was people on beaches, people on holidays. They're truly trying to sell that lifestyle. So what does that lifestyle mean? What does that lifestyle kind of believe? And I think if we're selling a lifestyle as marketers, we have an absolute responsibility to say, this is what this is the lifestyle we're selling and this is kind of the morals and the values that come with that lifestyle. And I think that is a really, really important thing that finance needs to kind of wake up to. And I think a lot of people kind of skeptical, is like, oh, it's just marketing, kind of jumping on bandwagons and selling kind of these emotional stories. But I think it's super important that for brands nowadays, we, if we're selling a lifestyle, you also have a responsibility to sell your morals and sell, sell your values as well. Um, and I think FinTech in the UK is catching up. I think the banks are not. Um, and I think BBVA with this, as long as their intentions are great which I'm sure they are I think that gender neutrality is really important it's an important value and and even yeah I think it's important value and I I kind of take my hat off to them.
0: I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it um, I mean, we we obviously lived, I mean, all of us are, uh, are old enough to have lived through the, the revolution that was sat-nav, right? And actually your ability to, I mean, I had Stephen Fry as my sat-navigation in my car for at least three years. It was wonderful. Like I love driving around. It was just a voyage of uh, exploration with Stephen. So, you know, I mean, actually, does it just come down to personal preference? Do you just want to be able to pick those things? Because certain people will respond better to one through another. What do you think,
3: Daniel? Um, well, I, I suppose I make a broad point if that's not swerving the, the question. But um, I feel like voice assistance in financial services was a sort of very, you know, strongly touted thing two or three years ago. And I, I just don't think we've really seen, you know, much traction. I think obviously, uh, you know, the the names you didn't mention have all, I'm sure, grown in terms of users. But I would really question to what extent people use them for anything other than very simple you know timers on on for cooking and that sort of thing turning you know what what is the time that sort of thing and um, so you know whether we're at the stage of blue can I borrow you know fifty thousand euros and open a savings account uh, you know i I just don't really think we're there now that being said often when people make those sort of predictions, it's just the time when really that big paradigm shift comes. So I could be eating um, my words in a few years' time. But yeah, I just I just don't think voice assistants yet, you know. And and you know, I think chatbots uh, where you type actually are probably um, a lot more useful and probably a lot more um, user friendly and and easier to interrogate um, in terms of machine learning, etc. Now, I, I guess the question is. Um, If if indeed it is the case that uh, gender neutral um, tones of voice are desirable, you know, is there also the equivalent for how people respond in or how a machine responds in, um, in text? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs>
0: hmm. i mean that's a very good point isn't it i mean we can argue a lot about whether a feminine voice or a male voice is uh you know more suitable for these types of things or stating or creating a preference is one thing but actually just is it i mean asking for your balance on the on the train on the way home is probably a very good article of getting mugged isn't it you know what i mean so like don't don't do that like would be a thing and and i'm not sure given i mean my uh my amazon device in my my kitchen is predominantly used for timers to get my kids off the iPad or them playing the Hamilton soundtrack. So, you know, very much different kind of use cases for these things. I can't imagine trying to have a conversation with it about my finances right now. But as you say, these things do evolve in terms of where you're going. It just, it wouldn't be my preference from an interface perspective. But uh, all right, we're going to have to move on. Uh, next up, we have a uh, another story, which is Vips and Visa announced partnership to enable mobile payments. Lots of, lots of payments things in this Uh, This uh, episode today. So Visa and Vips, the leading digital wallet in Norway, today announced a strategic partnership to accelerate mobile payments in Europe. Visa clients and partners will now be able to take advantage of the Vips platform to create their own digital wallets and offer customers new ways to pay, be paid and manage their money. More consumers in Europe will be able to use their mobile devices to pay in store or online, as well as send money and receive money. In Europe, over 75% of Visa payments is now contactless. And in June 2020, e-commerce transactions increased more than 25% year on year uh, in 20 countries around Europe alone. So Vip sees the collaboration as an important step in their global expansion. Uh, and we had Eileen uh, Shetner, the partnership and lead for uh, Visa, come on our daily live stream show, The Breakfast Show, this morning to hear what they're up to.
4: We are announcing a strategic partnership between Visa and Vips to accelerate mobile payments across Europe. And with this partnership, we will be able to offer our clients and partners in Europe the Vips wallet platform from which they can tailor and offer a wallet to their customers so that their customers can pay and be paid and manage their money using this Wallet with such a great user experience. And as you said, David, yes, we only partner with the best, and we have naturally done a thorough due diligence. And uh, Vips has um, great market penetration in Norway, actually 85%. And they are one of the wallets in Europe with highest usage, and they have a wide range of capabilities and use cases. But also, as importantly, is the cultural fit and match between the companies whenever we select a partner. So the attitude, the management, the spirit, the energy, and obviously with a wallet, um, the go-to-market know-how. Because VIPs has actually scored... As the number one brand in Norway amongst the young, scoring even higher than Snapchat, which we find very, very fascinating, given that it is a financial application after all.
0: Cool. Uh, I mean, interesting one, right? The um, the idea that partnerships are the way forward for these things is is super super interesting. I mean, do you know what I've always found fascinating as well? The Nordic market is really interesting. We had um, Kirsten on, who's the CEO of DMB recently. The Nordic market, and particularly Norway, is a very advanced setup. You know, there's very digital services kind of built there, but we haven't seen the sort of takeoff though. Around the, you know, definitely not in the UK with everything like PayM and and what happened with with you know payments there, and we definitely don't see the type of collaboration that actually banks working with other banks in a, a friendly and sort of collegiate manner. But um, what do you think, Mel? Do you think this will um, take off with uh, them taking the the Vips platform to to other countries within Europe?
1: I think given that they've got such a penetration in Norway, they're obviously doing something right. Um, and I think that they've got a number of really interesting um, elements to their existing products, so like the QR scanner, the ability to send money between friends, like really easy online shopping, all of that sort of thing. I can totally see why they're really attractive um, really attractive to Visa. And I certainly think for other Scandinavian countries, um, they could be a really strong play. I do wonder though, if there may be, if Visa are trying to compete with Apple through these sorts of partnerships. So instead of it being led by Vips, I wonder if actually it's part of uh, Visa's overall strategy.
0: Mm, It's interesting. I mean, obviously Visa have made some pretty big acquisitions through this period of time as well, haven't they? With things like Plaid and, and, uh, and whatnot. So, but this is one where they're partnering with somebody who brings something different to what they do. But, um, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if you can, I, I always say the, the sort of buy build partner thing is it's a it requires a real voyage of emotional intelligence of which one of these is is kind of best isn't it and if you just buy a thing you're probably going to break why it made it uh really beneficial in the first place i think the guys from vips earlier on said actually that their brand recognition in the nordic region is higher than things like snapchat which is amazing so being in a situation where the particularly the younger age uh, demographics are really seeing this as a brand that you know alex as we were saying earlier on with chip it's like if you're if that brand really solves a real problem for you as a consumer then actually your affiliation with that is is really really significant isn't it definitely
2: yeah definitely i agree and especially kind of the obvious the obvious point here is uh with covid what what impact is is kind of physical cash gonna have um is is as we were saying germany is is very cash led still economy will covid start taking things into the digital um will partnerships like this seem like kind of the optimal time where people don't want to really start paying stuff with physical or or suddenly being less physical so um, i think this makes a lot of sense yeah
0: so it's a, it's against the 80s classic hit, then we're actually going to get less physical. Is that what you're saying at this stage? Um, Danny, what do you think on this one? Do you think um, there is a, a place, particularly, I guess, in the UK market? I mean, these types of partnerships, Visa doing really interesting things. But, you know, do you think pay by mobile phone number is going to take off in
3: uh, broader European countries? Definitely. I mean, I was astounded by that figure. Um, seventy-five percent of all of visas payments um being contactless. I mean, you know, it, it makes sense when you think about it and you think about your own um patterns in the last, you know, six months or so, but nonetheless it is it is pretty amazing. And yeah, I, I do I do think digital wallets are are very interesting. Whether they will gain as much traction in the UK as continental Europe, um I'm a bit skeptical um we obviously saw the exit of um uh, of lydia um from from the uk market um quite recently um, or at least the news of the of the exit um and um yeah it doesn't seem to be as much traction that that seems to be the case in in continental europe
0: it's interesting, isn't it? There's there's exits and there's exits. There's exits where you leave the country, and there's exits where you manage to sell the business, right? And uh, well, sadly, we're seeing much more of the, uh, the the former rather than the latter at this stage. But uh, all right, uh, let's move on to the the next story. Then, so this is over on the New York Times. It is. Two black-led banks merge to form a $1 billion lender. So a merger announced Wednesday will create the nation's largest black-controlled bank, and the first with major assets of more than $1 billion. Broadway Federal Bank, a Los Angeles-based commercial lender, will combine with City First Bank in Washington. The enlarged bank will specialize in three areas of financing, multifamily affordable housing, small businesses, and nonprofit development. Broadway and City First are community development financial institutions, which are lenders that focus on low and moderate income areas and typically serve minority borrowers, entrepreneurs who lack the assets to get traditional loans, uh, and are various other things in terms of supporting the local community. The new company will preserve Broadway's designation as a minority depository institution, which is a lot harder to say than you think it would be, a federally insured institution that is mostly owned by minority shareholders or led by a minority controlled board. The two banks desire to grow and create an organization with a larger capital base inspired by the merger. I mean, this is really interesting. Obviously, with everything that's been happening with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, actually, you know, we talk a lot about underserved and overcharged. And actually, in terms of pure access to financial services and access to financial services that really fundamentally understand people's day-to-day lives, then actually having minority-controlled startups or minority-controlled billion-pound asset-driven organizations uh, is really, really important. I mean, Alex, I think in, in in a slightly different way, you touched on this earlier on, which is like, people want to work with organizations that actually represent their their values and their morality right so actually establishing organizations that are really geared towards serving very specific people within the uh, the community is is probably a, a, a really sensible way of ensuring that you a, are run by people who look and act and feel like you but actually that they have a real sense of empathy towards actually the the financial standing or even just the the struggles of life right
2: completely agree i think as i was saying earlier it's um I remember when Monzo first launched in the UK and it was really the first time that I was very strange, I was at Glastonbury Festival when I first saw someone use a Monzo card. And that was really kind of my first kind of my first time I ever really saw FinTech and thought, wow, this is crazy. People are actually like really into like a, a bank you were using a card and it was it's like so fin, much- fintech in a field like exactly. literally it's like it's everywhere at this Same stage again. isn't it yeah. exactly in glass of all places but no, it was it was crazy because it was the first time that that someone was using kind of a financial service and going like no no i i am a monzo customer i like, am feeling really proud for what that meant to, to them and, and kind of showing off that they were the monzo customer this is what it means to be a monzo customer so i think again it is when you're selling a financial product, or or really when you're selling a brand as a marketer, um, you are selling, you're really selling kind of a badge for that customer to wear, and 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 and, and like what does that badge say? What, what what does kind of what does it mean? What values are you selling? Because you really are selling values, and I think it's it's often kind of sneered at as a kind of marketing technique, but it's it's really not. It's so categorically important that brands who. All brands nowadays are becoming lifestyle brands whether they like it or not frankly so it is super important that they sell the morals and the values that they stand by and I think this is a great news story and I think um, yeah
0: I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting one I, I, um, I mean I personally really don't subscribe to the idea that uh, you have to be something to be able to support something. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that's uh, in at all what you were saying, Alex, but the idea that females can't produce products that are fit for men or men can't produce products that have, like it fundamentally breaks down the idea of what a good product manager should do, which is like be incredibly empathetic to be able to sort of create um, the the product for the individuals, not for you as, as an individual, if that makes sense. Um, but there is definitely something in actually individuals being in the community, being able to see people of the reflection of them, whether it's of uh, a particular color or whether it's of gender or whatever, um, that actually represent pillars of the community. And, uh, you know, obviously gone is the day slightly that actually the the branch manager was like the the pillar of the community in and around everybody but financial services play such an important role in everyday life for everybody and having people to look up to in every walk of life I think is is incredibly important so I mean this is a, an interesting step but um, I mean Daniel what, what do you think I mean obviously we we don't really have this type of setup in the UK, do we? But uh, I mean, community banking and actually everything that community bank stands for in terms of supporting, you know, local people with local needs, uh, does sort of lead to these
3: things, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. And, you know, I mean, taking a step back and also just referencing, you know, what we talked about at the beginning of the programme, um, you know, we we obviously have free banking in this in this country, and we have been Sort of habituated, of you know, for a generation on that model of you know, banking is free. Well, you know, surprise, surprise, it's not really free. It's just that one customer segment sort of you know pays for the other customer segment, basically. And obviously, it's the it's the poorer segment that that is the one suffering on that in that model. You know, through through higher charges, through higher rates of interest, etc. And I think you know the you know paying, for example, perhaps even if it's a small amount you know it could well be um within you know um poorer customers interest potentially to do that um you know theoretically if the um as you said you know if the the community bank or um organization or or company um is sort of empathetic to to specific needs but um you know that's more of a broader point so um i think we will see a lot a lot more of that and and i think actually um yeah perhaps a uh, sort of an end of the free banking era um could be no bad thing
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's interesting i mean mel as somebody who builds out product on a day-to-day basis i mean what do you what do you think to this is it is it i mean i'm taking that broader view do you do you think it's important that i mean people build products for people like them or do you think i mean i'd hope product managers if they're really good at what they're doing they can build products for anybody
1: Yes, I agree. Um, I think you should be able to build products for everybody. But I think um, as a product manager, as a human being, um, it's important to uh, mentor and give opportunities to people who may be a bit, uh, you know, a few steps or a few pages um, earlier than you in the book. And certainly, I think that that's what, you know, these movements are trying to do, like the Bank Black movement. It's like a grassroots organization that's helping with uh, financial education and, um comparisons of uh, different accounts that people might be able to have access to. But I think there is a real challenge in the US, uh, where the black owned banks um, have not really had enough uh, liquidity, and they haven't really had enough uh, wealth to be able to improve local communities. And, you know, the last recession, actually, you you can kind of see it in the numbers as well. So um, we can be academic about it. But You know, the last recession hit black owned um, banks really hard and uh, the median net wealth declined for black families by um, something like 45 percent compared to, I think, about 25 percent for white families. Um, And those figures are from the Los Angeles Times. So yeah, I think it's hugely important and access to uh, financial services um, and the reality of whether you're going to get approved for something. I, I think people have to be able to empathize with your situation. And I don't think it's as simple as um, you know an algorithm or a computer deciding those things. I think um, these community banks play a, a huge role in empowering people and uh, you know small business owners and families especially.
0: Hmm. I think it's, I mean, to Daniel's point as well, it's like, actually, I mean, we are used to in the UK having a, a setup where people can get access to banking if they want to. I mean, it's, I think it's something shocking, like 20 something percent of of New York is unbanked. Like that is insane. Like actually for a, you know, a developed and, you know, I'm using air quotations, which I know doesn't work on podcasts, but I still keep doing it. Um, you know, A developed nation to have such a a significant level of unbanked, um, and particularly within, you know, ethnic minorities, that is a. Just a shocking sign of, of of actually where it is. So, I mean, if somebody can drive a little bit more empathy and a little bit more, um, you know, products that are really geared towards people, then it's it's only going to be a good thing, isn't it? But uh, all right, I'm afraid, guys, we're going to have to uh, move on, though. So, uh, we're now going to move on to really sort of getting towards the end of the show. But just uh, there was a wealth of, of stories that happened this week that we haven't been able to cover. Um, But we want to really just give these guys a bit of a shout out in terms. Of the things that they're doing. So Mel, do you want to kick us off with the first story?
1: Yes, absolutely. So the first one is a Finextra story and uh, Brazil's Neon Pagmentos secures $300 million equity raise. Uh, So it's founded in 2016 and Neon launched with a simple digital account and has since expanded its product suite to include investment products, credit cards and personal loans. It has expanded to also serve small businesses Accelerated by the acquisition of May Facil, if I'm pronouncing that right, in 2019. Most recently, in July, Neon acquired one of Brazil's first brokerage platforms, Magliano Invest, in order to offer new investment products. The company currently claims 9.4 million account holders and around 1 million micro entrepreneurs. And it's seen a huge surge in deposits, investment and online purchases, as well as an uptick of 26% um, in new users since March. Neon says the cash will be used to support hiring, scaling its loan business, and to pursue strategic M&A opportunities. Um, So I think Neon has a clear purpose around democratizing access to bank accounts, to any Brazilian. And they also always stress that they don't transfer the cost of inefficiency to their customers. So they obviously have or they're aspiring to have a very lean operation. I'm sure that anything um, that the rollout entails will benefit their direct deposit customers, but I think they'll also be investing in platform capabilities and embedded financial services too. For example, additional loans, FX, tax and payment products to its micro entrepreneurs, um, and very timely indeed with the COVID and uh, you know challenges around small businesses struggling to smooth out their cash flow. Back over to you, David.
0: Awesome. Uh, Next up, there was a story on Finextra, which is Singapore's Atlantis launches Neobank in India. So Singaporean fintech firm Atlantis is entering the Indian market with a neobank called... Neobank, uh, an app-based banking platform targeting millennials and the Gen Z. So Neobank provides its customers with a smart, personalized platform with an initial focus on the Indian and Southeast Asian uh, geography. Atlantis uh, claims a waitlist of 5,000 users and expects to onboard 3,000 registrants within the first three months, offering a range of personal financial management tools, investment options, and companion savings accounts. The company initially has its eyes on India's 10 million plus youth segment I I mean look India is a massive growth opportunity for anybody who has a good level of rigidity there is huge amounts of people there is huge amounts of people who really need a lot of financial support so uh, this seems a good move I'm not sure about the name though I mean you could probably be a bit more original couldn't you but uh, over to you Mel
1: So the next one is a Reuters article and it's Amazon's new offerings uh, make India center of FinTech push. So Amazon has added insurance and even gold to its menu of financial services in India to expand its customer base and attract more subscribers to its prime loyalty program in the battleground growth market. A ban on high value currency notes in late 2016 amplified a digital payment drive in India with Amazon joining in the sphere by Google, Phone pay and Paytm. WhatsApp, which boasts over 400 million users in India, has been awaiting approval to offer payment services over two years. And Paytm, backed by Alibaba, has booked losses running into hundreds of millions of dollars. Can Amazon be a success in the Indian market? Well... There's definitely been a challenge for later payment entrants, so even where they've got a social footing like WhatsApp, um, it seems the regulators have been wrestling over data localization rules, Um, but since Amazon got in there fairly quickly, it's definitely got speed to market advantage. Profit margins in digital payments businesses are generally quite tight. Um, And so speculation has been that Amazon may have to rely on lending and insurance to make up that margin. But there's also an avenue into investments and wealth management products tapping into a growing regional demand there too. And incidentally, Amazon is also looking to acquire a large stake um, in India's Vodafone around $4 billion. And I wonder if this is part of a multi-pronged strategy to assure their success in adjacent financial services products. By securing a foothold in consumer telecom and internet services and devices. Back over to you, David.
0: It's truly scary, isn't it? Amazon have more money than like Religion, right now, do you know? Like, actually, they, they so long as they continue to invest it sensibly, then um, they're good forever, aren't they? But um, it's amazing to see so much uh, innovation happening in India as well. I know we uh, bizarrely, I know we talked about doing an after dark back in uh, in Mumbai at some point. So when COVID shakes off, maybe that's a good idea. Then we'll have to talk to producer Laura see if she uh, she fancies that long trip over to India. But uh, all right, guys, and finally this week we have uh, a fun story. I have to say, so over on the New York Times, it is that Goldman Sachs Well, it has money, it has power, and now it has its very own font. So, the opening paragraph for this New York Times uh, article is pretty damn excellent, I have to say. So, there are so few ways to express yourself when you're at Goldman Sachs. Sure, you can commission a 10 part documentary series about your company's history, and your chief executive can moonlight as a DJ in the Hamptons. But, how do you really let the masses know what it's like to be you, be the best? in your everyday functions, well, of course, you design your own font, don't you? So Goldman Sachs has introduced Goldman Sands, a typeface it describes as approachable without being whimsical. Uh, and I mean, that sounds, like, that sounds like a gin you might drink, doesn't it? That's the, the approach that I'd want to see. So, so it's describing it as neutral uh, with a wink. Like, I feel like they might have had way too much time on their hands during the COVID period to to really sort of think these ones through. But according to GS, head of UX, the typeface gets funky in characters less likely to show up on a spreadsheet. The ands and the at characters are almost obscenely curvy. So an alternative lowercase g is wacky, Double st- uh, like genuinely like what do you guys think to this has goldman sachs got more money than sense and more time on their hands than they really should have uh, or is this probably a good use of time i, I like i'm not going to judge yet but alex what do you think uh,
2: there's two things i absolutely love about this story one is the comment section if anyone hasn't read the comment section read the comment section because it's hilarious and number two is the fact they've made the font downloadable publicly and for free which is literally asking for trouble. So uh, anyone on Photoshop, get out there, go and uh, and create Goldman sucks and, and all those things. I think it's gonna be hilarious. So
0: I mean, it does feel like the meme potential on this one is gonna horribly bite them in the ass, doesn't it? But uh, I mean, Dan- Daniel, are we gonna see a, an, an alt five specific font anytime soon, or uh, are you guys uh, sticking to
3: like traditional stuff? I I love that. We <clears throat> we do take a lot of time in in looking at um, fonts. But we settled on one you know a while ago, but um I mean you know I also had a, a lot of fun chuckling to this story and and you know very much enjoyed the killer intro um but what I would say um just as a you know to play contrarian um I think this could be could be quite interesting, so you know what it instantly reminded me of is um you know perhaps you remember two thousand and four two thousand and five, the Guardian newspaper. Um, you know very radically redesigned its own um its own sort of format, so it went to the Berliner format um which it still has today i think um and it also did a very very expensive um uh design or you know, original design of a new font um and you know that was that was transformational for the guardian that that overall design process I think they spent something like eighty million pounds on it um I just was just checking the numbers now, and and a lot of that money did go into into creating you know this this new font, and um you know that was um you know I, I guess when the the paper really started to make its you know very very strident shift to digital um you know which obviously um you know has has uh, fared well um for for you know fifteen years. Um so I, I think, you know, this perhaps could be a, a smart move by, by Goldman Sachs. I mean one of the things the article didn't mention to me is that it really the the font screamed to me a sort of, you know, a real tech focus. So, you know, perhaps that's sort of imbued in the you know, in the I think what they refer to as the obsidian curves um of the of the and
0: um I love I I just really love is like when creative people get let loose on something what they will possibly come back I know Will at 11fs right now is like look let me at it when they put two ones together it's just not going to be a one it's not going to be two ones together it's going to be an 11 it's going to be looking complete like I Mel I can definitely see Will using this as an excuse to do something fun can't you
1: absolutely um but you can sort of feel I, I don't know, I feel very empathetic to towards whatever uh, frustrated design team came up with this. <laughs> I, I can imagine that over lockdown, you yeah, it was a passion project that probably got slightly out of control. But um, I mean, we're talking about it. And it's something interesting. And it's something other than financial services. And it shows a little bit of, you know, irrespective of what they say, it does show a bit of whimsy that they're actually doing this.
0: I mean, it's a lot more practical than when HSBC had Jean-Michel Jarre do an audio signal, wasn't it? Like, this is way more practical than that. So uh, I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot of this font. Goldman Sachs are definitely kind of out there doing a lot of things. But uh, let's see if this one really catches on. All right, guys, that is all the time we have, I'm afraid, and wraps up this week's new show. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and Chip Alex?
2: Um, I am on Twitter at ACT Latham or Download Chip. Get involved and I will almost definitely be on the community forum answering questions. So I'll see you there.
0: Fantastic. And
2: Daniel, where can
3: people find out a
0: little bit more about you and the awesome work that you guys are doing at AltFi?
3: So obviously altfi.com um, is where you can, where you can go and, and sign up to our newsletter and, and buy tickets to all of our events and things like that. Um, also, um, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter as well. Um, at DJ Lanyon. Um, nothing to do with the Hamptons, just my initials. <laughs> Damn it. I was just about to book you for a party. That would
0: have been amazing. Uh, and uh, and Mel, where can people find out a little bit more about you and the work you're up to?
1: Well, you can find me at 11FS and email me melissa.stringer at 11FS.com. And you can also find me on LinkedIn.
0: Fantastic. As for me, you can find me lurking around LinkedIn these days, just David Breer. All right. Thank you for listening to the show this week. If you did like what you've heard, subscribe to this podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It super duper helps us make this better and helps other people find it as well. Speaking of making it better, we would love you to give us your thoughts via our super quick survey. If you just jump over to it's a bitly link, so it's bit.ly forward slash fintech insider survey you can let us know what you think of this and any areas you would like us to improve we do love feedback and do love improving so as always though if you want to join the conversation find us over on social media just search for 11fs or fintech insider pretty much anywhere you would think of or i don't know email us at podcast at 11fs.com thank you very much for everything this week thank you very much for listening goodbye